to Maritime AgCast, the podcast dedicated to the farmers and the farm community of the Maritimes. We will discuss all things related to the livestock industry with local, regional and national guests, as well as keep you up to date with current markets and industry events. John is a research biologist at Agriculture Agri-Food Canada in Nepan, Nova Scotia. His areas of expertise includes pasture grazing systems, red meat, animal nutrition and beef cattle. John is also the owner operator of the pasture raised free range meat operation Holdenka Farms in Wallace Bay, Nova Scotia. Katie is the ruminant livestock specialist at Perennia, originating from Northern Ontario, where she recently completed her Master's of Science in Animal Nutrition at the University of Guelph. During her Master's, she focused closely on sheep and beef. Katie's experience includes research trials, farm visits, and monitoring lambing ewes. As a Master's student, Katie managed a two-year research project that looked at determining fiber requirements for market lambs. Shane is the Forage Specialist and Research Program Coordinator at Perennia. As the forage specialist, he provides advice on best practices for hay and silage production, as well as pasture management to producers in Nova Scotia, and will be working on forage, small plot, and on-farm research. As a research program coordinator, Shane works closely with the production specialist team to help manage on-farm and small plot research projects, identifying and developing research proposals, and assists with outreach activities. Shane completed his Bachelor of Science in Agricultural and Environmental Studies with a major in Agro-Environmental Sciences at McGill University and his Master's of Science in Plant Science focused on forage quality and prediction models. So I want to thank everybody for being with us here today as we talk about uh, our forage harvesting and, and storage programs here in the Maritimes. I'm going to start off with probably the easiest question but probably the most complicated response to this whole forage system is when should I be harvesting? And Shane, maybe we'll start with you to, to take the first chew at that. Sure, that's a great question. It is a simple question, but it is very complex as you talked about. Um, it's really going to depend on the forages that you have in your field, uh, whether you're growing a pure legume stand or growing a pure grass stand, or whether you have a mixed uh, grass and legume stand. It can also be impacted on whether you're uh, targeting your management for your legumes or your grasses, and that can be dictated by the amount of grass to legume you have in your field. Um, it's also going to depend on what you're looking to do. Um, if you're looking to harvest for silage or whether you're looking to harvest for hay. Another factor that uh, can take into account is whether you're targeting quality or yield um, for that particular cut or, or that particular need, depending on your farm. Um, one of the things that we typically talk about for quality is looking at your stage of maturity of the forages in your field. Um, for example, if you're looking at alfalfa, you want to target early to late bud. Uh, if you're looking at quality, um, this can usually get you about three cuts in a given year. If you're looking at yields, maybe you want to do a 10% bloom. When we look at grasses, we want to target more like the boot stage or early heading when we're looking at quality. Um, however, this can be harder to dry down for dry hay. And so maybe you cut at a later date uh, for dry hay. So maybe my next question will be a, a little bit more specific. And, you know, I, I live in a fairly dairy centric part of this province and I see a lot of my neighbors out, you know, anytime after the long weekend of May, maybe even a little bit before on an early spring. And then I see some of the other farmers around me that get around to making hay 
sometime in July, um, whenever whenever they're on vacation. So, you know, can can we talk just a little bit about you know the difference in in what you say, Shane, there around you know whether or not you're taking haylage or hay or or silage and and kind of when you want to go there with relation to weather and growth stage. Well, uh, that's a difficult question, uh, unfortunately. Um, sometimes uh, producers aren't getting out into their field till they have time and the weather looks good. Um, however, that's not always the best uh, timing if you're looking at quality. Um, you really want to get out into your field and scout your field and know what's growing. Uh, you want to see your stage of maturity. Uh, one of the big concerns that we have is um, as things start to bloom, whether we're talking about legumes or grasses, um, our quality starts to decline quite heavily. Um, and depending on the timeline that you, you get out to your field, uh, I, I understand that weather can play a significant role on when you actually get out to cut. Um, but uh, making sure that you get a good first cut uh, at the appropriate time will set you up for success uh, later in the season. Can also maybe ensure that you get a second cut when others are only getting a first cut and that can lower your feed costs later on in the year. So John, I want to bring you in just a, a little bit here too. And the next thing that crosses my mind is, you know, we, we're trying to get maximum productivity out of our fields and to get maximum productivity out of our cattle. So what does taking that early first cut, like Shane says, to maybe get a second cut mean for two things? First of all, the overall health of the forage stand and then how productive the, the livestock can be on the other end? That's a, a, a good question. And I guess the, the first thing when you're deciding how early you want to get out to harvest, you have to understand what animals you have that you're going to feed it to. If you're a beef cow calf who's calving, let's say the, the middle of May, so your cows are dry all winter, you'd have no need, unless, unless you're backgrounding your cattle, you're taking your young calves to need high quality feed for them. If you sell your calves in the fall, you wouldn't look to go out the end of May, early June to make feed because you wouldn't need that, that high of an energy feed for your livestock through the winter, if it's just for your dry cows. Productivity is one thing, but really it ultimately comes down to your profitability. And you're probably gonna find it'll be a little more profitable to go out more like that second, third, maybe the, even the last week of June, depending upon what particular species and varieties you've planted and get a, a first cut that will, you know, just slightly over, over achieve what your cattle or, or your dry sheep might need through the winter and still have lots of moisture and an opportunity to grow a second cut either for harvest or for grazing. That's, that's sort of my perspective on how to determine when, when you want to feed. It really depends on or when, when you want to harvest. It depends on what you're feeding that, that uh, silage or hay to. I, I know from talking with a number of dairy farmers that get out quite early in the year, they do have concerns that doing like a, a four-cut system, they, they tend to shorten the life of like their alfalfas in particular sometimes. They, they, they feel maybe that's not quite as ideal. I know a few of them that feel... You know, if it wasn't for the fact they're doing a corn corn silage rotation in there, they're not actually optimizing the the lifespan of that stand. There's no simple answers to these things. It depends on your on your overall system. But for most beef and sheep guys, getting out sort of in the end of that first week of June, if you're if you're looking for something for your your growing uh, yearlings or or your weaned animals, or if you're looking for something to feed to 
to use or to Tazer Academy in the winter, usually that, you know, later in that first week of June for, for most of your Timothys and alfalfa red clover will give you a pretty good yield and quality balance. And, and again, give you that good chance for a nice second cut, potentially third cut, depending upon your species and, and your summer infertility. And possibly, you know, if you, if you want to look at grazing some of that later on. So 2021, uh, by most accounts, was a pretty good growing season here in Atlantic Canada, uh, especially here probably in central Nova Scotia. And we've heard, or I've heard, I guess, from several producers who just kind of got tired of making hay. Uh, but there are some folks that I've heard of that are happy they're getting a second cut this year. So I, I guess my question here really is, you know, how late in the year um, can producers either get that second or third or maybe even fourth cut of forage uh, before they add additional stress to the plant that might hinder its recovery through the fall and into the winter? In theory, that would be like, you know, five, six weeks before we're going to have that sort of the, that end of the growing season when things freeze up. But that's uh, been a moving target and unpredictable the last number of years. You know, I was just uh, talking with the fellow that works for me this morning about how normally this time of the year we, we would have a lot of fr- like three or four nights a week when we'd have a, a hard enough frost that water lines in the pastures would be frozen. But we've had one so far, maybe two this year. So I, I think our window is most years maybe moving a little bit later in the into the fall, like towards especially for like our, our alfalfas and maybe our trefoils, we can look at sort of the last week of September and still be most years relatively safe. You're getting a little bit risky because we can't predict what the weather will be, but, but it seems that things continue to grow a lot longer into the fall now than say 10 or 15 years ago. I'd agree um, with John's statement. It does seem to be changing. Um, we always want to be safe uh, going into the fall. Um, if we don't give plants enough time to, to, to grow and, and put that energy back down into the roots, you're going to have difficulty overwintering. Um, it may affect your stand going into next year. Just with such vari- variability across Nova Scotia and the growing conditions, it, it's hard to pin down a date like John has, has indicated. So it's interesting to see what the future is going to bring with, with climate change and uh, changing temperatures in the fall. Because the other element that goes into that, if you delay a, you choose not to harvest say the middle of September but you your forages continue to grow well into October you can end up with with too much cover that's either runs a risk if you get a lot of snow cover potentially of having mold issues over winter or having too much residual that if you're looking for an earlier first cut you're picking up some of that dead material it you know especially if you have things like tall fescue or or grass in there that that is going to grow fairly aggressively through the cool short days in the fall. So John, I'm glad you brought that up. One of the discussions we've actually had a couple of times in the last week with some producers I've talked to is, you know, what do you do in a, in a good growing year like this year where uh, you've already got plenty of forage either in, or in bales or in the bunk, but there's a lot of standing grass there still. And the question really becomes, do you cut it off either by clipping it or by another harvest to ensure that, you know, that grass doesn't decrease forage quality potential in next year? I mean, I'd say to graze it off. That's <laughs> wait, wait until the ground freezes, put a fence around and graze it, then you're, you're kind of covering most of your risk factors there. But that's not something everyone can do. 
I, I hate the thought of going through and just clipping and leaving behind, but at the same time, if you don't need the feed, it is an added cost to try and bail it up and wrap it or, or with, you know, whatever your option might be that way. Shane, in your work with producers, what, what have been some solutions uh, to that question so far this year that you've seen? I'd agree with John. You, you want to make sure the, the first scaling frost is through and the plants are no longer growing before you get in there. It's hard to look at your field and, and leave it, especially in some years where times are leaner. Um, however, you, you need to think about the potential impact on your future production. I certainly see uh, value in getting out there. If the field is dry enough and you're not gonna have any issues or frozen hard enough, if you can, if you can harvest it and, and get it off your field and use it as feed, you never know what, what spring is going to bring. So having that extra feed might be a value. Before we get into kind of the next stage after harvesting, and that's the storage bit, you know, I, I don't want producers to really forget maybe the summers of 2020, 2018, and 2017 that were a lot more challenging to make feed and, and dry conditions. And, and definitely some of our friends and neighbors in Western Canada dealt with that as well. This is kind of more of a long-term strategy type question. And and how do you really set up your fields, your particularly your forage, for long-term productivity uh, so that we're not quite as reliant on optimal growing conditions? Here are upcoming events brought to you by Dalhousie University Faculty of Agriculture. Dalhousie's Faculty of Agriculture is educating the next generation of farmers. Our students learn to solve real-world problems in a friendly, hands-on environment from professors who are leaders in their fields of study. Dal researchers have access to cutting-edge technology, labs, and resources. Whether it's applying genetics to improve livestock, working with producers to engineer more efficient blueberry harvesters, or designing smarter Christmas trees, Dal Agriculture is driving the innovation that makes our farming community stronger. Learn more. Visit dal.ca slash agriculture. Upcoming feeder sales at Atlantic Stockyards happen every second week with the next one occurring May 10th, starting at 10 a.m. There will also be a breeding stock sale occurring May 14th at 12 p.m. Please check AtlanticStockyards.com for a full sales schedule. In available programs, the Nova Scotia cattle producers have two programs available for 2022, the Nova Scotia Genetic Improvement Program and the Nova Scotia Soil Pasture and Forage Management Program. Both programs have application deadlines of both June 30th and November 30th. Additional information can be found at nscattle.ca. There are many Nova Scotia programs open for 2022. For a complete list of programs, as well as applications and guidelines, please visit novascotia.ca forward slash programs. Well, I think a lot of that is the choice of the species that you might be growing. Timothy is one of our more common grasses, especially in the sheep and the beef world that a lot of people will grow. But realistically, Timothy gives one good harvest in the spring and it doesn't tend to want to grow too much during July and August in the heat and the, and the, and the dry. Whereas if you look at grasses, there are a lot, a lot of people kind of shudder at this, but they're actually my favorite grasses. Things like your, your tall fescue, your canary and orchard grass will continue to grow through, even through some fairly challenging dry conditions in the summer. And they'll in, in a good summer, a wet summer, they will also grow very well. So they, they'll give you a, a pretty good yield. But if you're going to grow those types of species, then you do have to get out and get that early first harvest in, you know, in that early part of June, because 
they the reason a lot of people kind of love to hate them is because if you're not going to harvest them until July or or later, you're going to get a lot of stem and not a whole lot of feed value. But if you can get out there, if, you know, if your fields are right and your your workforce, your your ability to get the opportunity to to make feed early enough is there, those grasses and mixed with the right right uh, legume, either like a, a clover, red clover, tall fescue, or trefoil, they can really give you something that could grow well, even in in a fairly challenging dry summer. There's also the opportunity to, to change the species in your fields. You have more than one field um, to take advantage, like John's saying, uh, of uh, forages that um, grow better in these dry conditions like tall fescue and orchard grass. Um, John is spot on with the, the management aspect though. Um, often you hear people are not happy with them just because they're not managing them appropriately. One of the other ways that we can set up our fields for longer term success is making sure we're fertilizing um, our fields at the appropriate rates um, at the appropriate times and making sure we're getting lime down on those fields. Nutrients are incredibly important. They're becoming expensive. Um, every year that you're not putting fertilizer, whether it's uh, manure or um, chemical fertilizer down, you're, you're digging deeper into your nutrient bank um, and, and are going to have to dig yourself out of that eventually. By solving those problems from a year-to-year basis, or staying on top of it at least, um, you can help increase your forage yields, still hit your quality that you're looking for, and um, have continued success throughout the season and in future years. Shane, I'm glad you brought that up. And for those uh, folks who aren't aware of it, but uh, in the fall of 2021, the Nova Scotia Cattle Producers launched our Soil Forage and Pasture Management Program. Uh, that actually looks to help producers with things like forage sampling, soil sampling, uh, and to help compensate for the purchase of lime to improve fertility and eventually forage productivity and quality as well. And, you know, I think that's something, and, and John, you've been around a little bit longer than I have, but not much. Like, this has been something that I think has been talked about for 20 or 30 years, particularly in the beef industry, uh, is investing back in our soils to improve productivity and we, we haven't maybe seen the full outcome of that yet. I'm not sure if you have any comments about that or, or maybe some of the changes you have seen with investing in soils and how it leads to optimal forage, uh, but I'd be happy to hear those as well. Well, you're, you're exactly right. It's something we've been talking about for a long time. And lime is kind of one of those key, key nutrients that tends to be in the past has been less of the first priority people will spend. Even if you have relatively low pH, say like five and a half or even a little less than that, and you put some nitrogen-based fertilizer on there, you will see a response. You might only be getting, and Shane would probably know the number better, but you might only be getting 30, maybe at best 40% of the response you would get if the pH was where it should be, but you'll get a response. You see that response, you can see the field you fertilized will do a lot better than the one that you didn't. But what we're seeing, I think more and more with producers is a, a better appreciation that with lime, maybe you don't see that immediate bang for your buck. You're putting it on often all of the year. It takes, you know, two or three years really for, unless you're putting it into, into a newly plowed field, before it to actually get down to where it's going to start to have its its real benefits on, on the soil and in a more perennial type stand. But over the long term, it'll, it'll pay its dividends. I, I feel probably a lot more than chemical fertilizer without the 
pH being raised there because you'll just get so much more value from any fertility that you're putting on, be it in an MPK fertilizer or, or a manure. It's interesting you say that, John. I, I literally just an hour or so before recording this uh, podcast had a producer come in to talk about our, our new program. And that's literally the exact conversation that we had about using fertilizer uh, as a short-term solution when lime is the ultimate solution to uh, improving soil fertility all in all. Um, I'm not going to belabor the issue, but I, I think there is a bit of a recognition from individuals and definitely from uh, industry leaders and experts like yourselves. And I think we just need to get that information out to producers and, and show what those improved practices uh, can really mean for them. Uh, and not just in productivity, like you say, John, but uh, ultimately our end game for everybody here is, is profitability. Uh, so I'm going to switch gears a little bit here. So we've talked about getting our forage harvested is the best appropriate or most appropriate timing, sorry. Um, so let's talk a little bit about storing and maybe um, I'll start just at a really high level in, you know, storing of dry hay versus, you know, some common storage for haylage and silage and well, uh, Shane had referred to earlier, a lot of that comes down to when you're choosing to make that harvest and the, and the stage of your forage when you go to harvest. If you're, if you're trying for that first half of June, quite often the, the ground is still relatively moist. Your forages are often still in that boot stage or not in the, in a, in a bloom stage. So you're, you have, will have a hard time making dry hay at that time of the year just be, because of between the weather, the soil, like the moist soil and, and the growth stages of your plants. So it kind of almost requires you to look at doing some form of silage, be that either ground bale silage or, or chop silage. Whereas once you get into later into June, then depending upon the weather, you do start to see the opportunity to make dry hay. From a profitability standpoint, there's, you know, if, if you can make good quality dry hay at a lower cost, as long as you have a, you know, a relatively good way of keeping it dry through the through the summer and into feeding time but uh, you know you you can be sacrificing on the quality side especially on your first cut it's often it's a lot easier to make second cut hay rather than first cut hay so one of the things that i always kind of struggle with or maybe don't fully understand is you know when i drive through rural nova scotia or rural new brunswick even this time of the year and see bales that have been left out uh, in the field that haven't been picked up and aren't stored. Can you maybe explain the idea behind field storage versus gathering them? Is there any real difference in, in loss quality or, or loss in the amount of feed by not bringing those bales in out of the weather? John will probably be able to speak with a little more detail for this, um, but I would certainly recommend trying to get those bales out of the field, um, you lose significant amount of forage quality and even yield leaving them out of the field. I'm not necessarily saying that you need to have them wrapped, but even stored in such a way that uh, they're stacked on one another in an appropriate way with an adequate airflow uh, between the bales. Um, you can certainly reduce how much um, weathering condition that can happen to them and you can keep your forage quality higher. It becomes an issue when you don't have enough feed unexpectedly. Um, it can also be a lost opportunity for sales um, to make a, some money on um, some extra material that you have in the field. I, I guess a lot of it depends on two things in particular. One is what you're planning to do with those bales. 
I've got bales that are still out in the field because I'm going to bale grazing this winter. So they're going to be fed out there. Part of the thing with bale grazing is that I, I have minimal handling because just any, any time you go to pick up that ram bale with the tractor, you're looking at five, six, seven dollars per bale. Every time you go to touch it, you're looking, you know, using a, a 70, 80 horse plus tractor plus the manpower to, to move that. So the, the less you can handle them, the better. But that being said, if you have a bale that is not a very tightly made bale, if it's a, especially if it's like a second cut or like a, a finer type of a hay, then it's going to take a lot more damage more readily than something like, like a first cut hay that has a, just a bit more stem that'll help shed the water better. So the type of bale has some bearing. The other thing that has a surprisingly large factor on, on how much uh, quantity of feed you lose is the size of a bale because it's usually that outside inch or two that takes most of the hit. So if that's on a, on a four by four round bale versus a four by five round bale, it's actually, you know, that has, a, has a quite a bit of bearing on how much of the bale is still protected on the inside. John, just in your personal experience, when you are doing bale grazing, um, do you do anything for covering those bales out in the field or are they just left out to the elements for when you need them? I just totally leave them out to the elements for when I need them. Like I say, I just every time you go to handle that bale, it's going to cost you about five bucks minimum because I have too many things on the go. I, in addition to working off farm, I have a lot of hired help to do things. So you, you're looking at like a hundred bucks an hour for that tractor to run and how many bales can you move in an hour? It's pretty easy to figure out what it costs you to, every time you have to handle that bale. So if I have to handle that bale to even put it under a tarp and then handle that bale again to put it in the field, and then you look at the issues, you know, often you'd be doing that at times when the soil might not be quite ideal. So you have compaction issues, things like that. We handle the bale once when it goes from the field where it was made. We lay it out on the field where it's going to be fed and, and that's it. But I really appreciate bales that are tightly, tightly made that are, you know, sort of where we're using bale grazing for cows that are, are dry. So we don't have to, we're not looking for the optimal quality. So it tends to have a little bit more of a stock that helps to minimize how much the the water penetrates into the bale. Here's the market report brought to you by Atlantic Stockyards Limited. Atlantic Stockyards Limited has been Atlantic Canada's major livestock market for over 60 years. The stockyards attract buyers regionally as well as extending into central Canada. Livestock auctions occur every Thursday with cattle, sheep, goats, hogs, rabbits, and poultry all featured. Additional information, such as previous market reports, feeder sale dates, and vaccination forms can be found on AtlanticStockyards.com. For the weekend at April 22nd, 2022, in the local hog market, base price in Nova Scotia was $2.36 per kilogram, down 1.6 cents from last week. In Ontario, base price was down 1.6 cents from last week to $2.27 per kilogram. In the Quebec market, base price was $1.95 per kilogram, down 3.3 cents from last week. On the cattle side, fed cattle price at Atlantic Beef Products continues to sit at $2.83. In Ontario, live steers sold for $1.64, moving down 7 cents from last week. And in Quebec, rail price was $3.02, up 2 cents from last week. Call cattle Atlantic Stockyard sold for $1.02, downward change of 11 cents from last week while rail price Atlantic beef products was flat at $1.91. Calls in Ontario and Quebec were flat at 95 cents. 
Good dairy bob calves between 90 and 120 pounds at Atlantic Stockyards average $138 up $78. And good dairy beef bob calves average $225 down $21 from last week. Meanwhile, calves in Ontario were up 11 cents to a price of $2.50 per pound, and calves in Quebec were $2.83, an increase of $0.03 cents per pound. Base price for lambs at Northumberland is $15 per kilogram, and mutton's at $6.50 per kilogram. 50 to 64 pound lambs at Atlantic Stockyards average $3.63 per pound at 61 pounds, ranging from $3.60 to $3.65. In Ontario, 50 to 64 pound lambs averaged 449 at 58 pounds, ranging from 255 to 492 and a half. For 65 to 79 pound lambs at Atlantic Stockyards, they averaged 329 per pound at 72 pounds, ranging from 295 to 375. In Ontario, 65 to 79 pound lambs averaged 417 per pound at 71 pounds, ranging from $3 to $4.60. Use at Atlantic Stockyards range from $120 to $205, averaging $160. And in Ontario, use averaged $1.71 at 142 pounds and range from 55 cents to $2.95. Make sure you check the association websites for additional pricing information. I guess that just further adds into what we've kind of been talking about for this so far is just there's a lot of complex questions you need to answer. Uh, it's a complex uh, topic from the get-go, when you choose to harvest or what you do after post-harvest? Oh, absolutely. I mean, just, just for example, over the last five years, my average cost to overwinter a cow on bale grazing, of course we use stockpiled grass to, to get us through usually till sometime in December, even as late as early January. Um, so we're not feeding hay for any more than four, four or five months of the year. But it's typically in that $200 per cow range, which is pretty cost-effective way to keep a cow over winter. And that's all costs in, including the, the handling of the bale, the feeding of the bale. There's other savings that go with things like the bale grazing that like you don't have to have, you don't have bedding costs, you don't have manure handling costs. So there's, so you might have a bit more of a forage loss, but you're saving on, on in other ways. It's all part of the whole system that you have to look at as to how to decide what's really working for your system and what isn't. So I'm just going to maybe touch on something in a little further detail that you guys just brought up, and that's kind of the size of bales and, you know, how the bales are made and really how important that can be to not only optimal harvest, but storing as well. Maybe, John, maybe a, a bit of a historical context from you of what we've really transitioned to as far as round bale technology, and then what type of improvements that's made to our overall forage productivity as well, or maybe it hasn't. Well, no, I mean, we've definitely got some improvements on, on how we make round bales. Because if you look at round, even a lot of the round bales even that were made in the 90s, they like the sort of the soft core, hard core, and, that, and you know, the newer ones, they can, you can have a lot more control over, over the density of that. A, a baler that can make both a nice dry hay bale for you, but also make a, a silage bale if you need it. That's, there's a cost to buying such a baler because they're usually a little bit more than one that just does dry hay, but it does give you a lot more flexibility. That ability to control the, the, the density is, is quite helpful because if you're handling a, sm a small soft bale, but that might weigh, let's say 350 or 400 pounds, or you're handling a big, a five foot diameter, hard, you know, nice dense bale that weighs, you know, six or 700 pounds, 
it's costing you the same amount to handle that bale, whether, you know, whether it's a big one or a little one. Maybe you put a few more little ones on the wagon, so there's a slight saving there, but still, every time you're taking that out to feed the cows or whatever, you're not moving as much per hour as you are with the bigger bale. So to me, that's a big bonus. I'll qualify that with, though. <laughs> yeah, um, last year I was doing bale grazing with my sheep using sheep round bale feeders and the round bale feeders would only take a four and a half foot diameter bale. If I'd had five foot bale, it wouldn't have fit. So you, you, do, you do have to make sure it works with what your, your, your equipment is right from beginning to end. So bigger bales typically can be more cost effective, but not, not always. But in net wrap technology, I think, is, is another one of these things. With net wrap over string, you do get a lot more shedding of, of the moisture. At the same time, though, you do have to be a little more careful with net wrap because it potentially causes more issues to animals if it gets consumed by them because it's more likely to cause a blockage uh, of the oat flow from the rumen and cause what they call software disease. So that is a, is a concern with, with net wrap. So you want to make sure you do get all that netting off, which can be a challenge if you're trying to frozen bales. So just to switch gears a little bit but stay on the same track and uh, we've talked a lot about bales and not only a lot of beef guys are using chop silage but I wonder if we can just have a, a quick conversation around you know the benefits of potentially chopping feed versus baled feed and some best management practices for building a bunk and managing a bunk. So if we're working with chop silage I mean that one of the first things, yeah, you don't want it to be too dry. You do need to have that 30, like 32, 33% to maybe 40% dry matter. You don't want to be too much drier than that. Otherwise, you're going to have issues with that ability to, to pack your soil and you get enough of the air out. You know, you, you want consistent chop length. Um, a bit depends on your, on your forage maturity and, every, and your moisture level. But, you, you know, you, that sharp knives on your, on your harvester are very, very important. Really, ideally, you want to fill that bunk as quick as you can and get covered as quick as you can. One or two days would really be the most you'd want that bunk to be open, and you should really cover it at night between your fills just because it'll start to heat as soon as you get it in there. It's just starting to have bacterial action, and you want to make sure that's anaerobic action as much as possible with minimal opportunity for, for aerobic fermentation to take place. So one of the questions that's going to lead us into episode two here is around testing your forage. So I think this is one of the things that we can probably all agree on that uh, most beef and sheep folks in the region don't do a lot of forage testing, which will ultimately lead to maybe some challenges in managing that forage and feeding it to their animals. Katie, can you maybe talk to us about just how simple it can be uh, and the process that you would go through for testing your, your stored forage? So ideally the proper way that you're doing it, you... You sort your forages based on fields, cuts, and then you would take somewhere around 20 core samples per forage. But really, but if I'm going out on farm, I'm really only going to get about four or five cores uh, per bale from, from each field. And it might not be the most representative, but it's going to be close enough and give you something that you can work with. So to test your forages, the first thing that you're going to need is a forage probe. That's something that we have here at Perennia and I'm happy to go out on farm and grab um, a forage sample from you, but it's basically an attachment that fits onto a drill um, and that lets you to drill into a bale or into um, the face of a bunk and it's going to take a core sample from that bale and it's going to be representative of that bale. 
So ideally you should be taking um, about 20 samples per forage. So if you sort it based on field or um, cut, but really if you take four or five, that, sh that should be good enough to give you an idea of uh, what your forage quality is like. Those get pooled, uh, you can send them into the lab and get a report from the lab. What do you see kind of from your folks's lens of your extension work of how common it is for beef and sheep farmers in particular um, that are actually going and testing forages and, and getting ready so that they can manage their feeding program over the winter? I do see more sheep producers um, testing their forages more than beef producers, which makes sense because sheep do need a bit more intensive management than beef cattle. But overall, I, I would love to see more of it. Um, I would love for many, many more producers to be testing their forages, sending it in and coming up with a feeding plan uh, for their forages for the year. And then from my perspective to, to talk further about a point that Katie brought up is um, when you're storing your forages, make sure that you are storing them in such a way that you have similar species that were managed at the similar time in similar ways. So they have a similar cut time or um, a similar bail time. I would like those to be stored in a, a place that's easy to access them. Um, ideally, you're making notes of those, those bales uh, or the bunks or whatever you will be using for your storage option and indicating what forages were there, what, what stage of maturity that they were at. And so you can link that to your forage testing um, so that when you uh, have those results, you're able to go back into your storage facility, whatever that may be, and pull out the feed that you need at the given times um, that you'll need them to, to meet your production goals. As we're getting to wrap up here this episode, I'm not sure if Shane or Katie or John, if you have any closing comments around uh, or take home message related to harvesting and storing and testing, but uh, if so, I'd be happy to hear those as we wrap up. Well, I think when, when it comes to your harvesting in your, of your stored forage, so you, you start by looking at what you're going to, need, going to need to feed it to. You always kind of want to aim for something a little bit better quality than what you think you're going to need, just because A, things can often go a little bit wrong weather-wise, but B, it's, it's nice to make sure you make, might be a little bit better energy or protein than what your animals need rather than lower, um, just because you know they're going to do a little better. And try to do the best that you can at with what you have for weather for that year and the equipment you have to work with. I would agree with John on that. My big takeaway would be to know what you have in the field. Uh, make sure you're doing your forage testing and make sure you're putting appropriate notes down so that you know what you did that year. So when you go into your next season, if you didn't hit your forage uh, quality goals or your forage yield goals, you have that information um, so that you're better able to make management changes in the future. Well, folks, with those words of wisdom, I'd definitely like to thank you for being with us again today. Um, look forward to having any conversations we may have in the future. And um, this sounds like a topic that we can turn into not only a podcast, but uh, maybe our listeners will have a lookout for uh, a potential online workshop that will host uh, on ration balancing and forage management. And I will remind our listeners that uh, through the Soil, Pasture, and Forage Management Program at the Nova Scotia Cattle Producers. Part of that program is to engage someone like Shane or Katie or John or, or Jonathan at Perennia to, to put together a bit of a feeding plan for them. So we encourage you uh, to look at that program and if not, uh, at least reach out to some of the 
the folks that we have here in the region uh, that can help you put those plans together. So with that, folks, thanks for being with us today and we'll chat again in the near future. Don't want to miss any future episodes? Subscribe to a Maritime Acast today through Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast platform. This concludes another episode of Maritime Agcast. We would like to thank our producer, the Agri-Commodity Management Association, Director Ashley, as well as Matt Whitehour and Micah Dahl-Anderson of archesaudio.com for providing the music you heard during this episode. Until next time, happy farming and keep feeding the Maritimes. <laughs>